If you belong to Jesus Christ, your sin has been dealt with. Your record of guilt has been wiped clean. And you can live today in the joy of a clean conscience because the problem is dealt with and the guilt is gone. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you're with us as we continue to look at a message entitled, The Sacrifice That Purifies. And Jonathan, I think that uh, there may be some of us who wrestle with this truth because we believe that God can forgive our little sins easily. But man, some of us have committed the big ones. And if, if that's you today and you're listening, you're saying, I don't know that God could forgive that. This is a great day for you to have tuned in because, Jonathan, regardless of what that may be, Christ is able to forgive and wash away all our guilt, right? Well, that's right. I mean, what more valuable sacrifice could be offered? What more precious blood could be spilled than the blood of the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior? And Hebrews is wanting to draw out the extraordinary truth that because Jesus has shed his blood for us, because he's given himself as a sacrifice for our sin, there is no other sacrifice to be made, there is nothing else to be done. For those who know him, who have received the gift of salvation, who have trusted in him, the matter is settled, and there is nothing else that needs to be done to deal with our sin. And that is... That is the most wonderful truth in all the world, and it is the most reassuring and comforting truth for those who are struggling with guilt and with the reality of of perhaps what they have done. And if you're in that position today, let me say to you, if you are trusting in Christ, if your hope is in him, your sins have been forgiven. What a great truth for us to reflect on as we begin our time together. We're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, continuing a message called The Sacrifice That Purifies. Here is Jonathan. As a family, we live out of town just a bit, sort of in the country, and we have a a sump pump in our basement to remove extra water and to stop the house from flooding. The other day, our our pump burnt out, and the the sump pump started filling up with water. Now, now fortunately, we have a, a backup pump, and this backup pump, when it is activated, it sounds an alarm. And the point of the alarm down there in the basement is to tell you that you have an objective problem. The water level is rising too high. The backup has been activated. You need to address the problem. We can dismiss the human conscience as a psychological weakness. You just need to toughen up and stop worrying so much. But what we actually need to do is recognize that the conscience is telling us of an objective reality. It is telling us of the reality of sin and guilt before God the judge. Our conscience points us beyond ourselves to our maker and his view of our sin. And it tells us that we have a problem with God himself. Now, the reason that the blood of Jesus can help us, that it can address the problem of the conscience, verse 14, the reason is that his blood, sacrificed for our sin, pays our debt before God the judge. The death of Jesus satisfies the death sentence that we deserve. And because his shed blood pays our debt, clears our guilt, his shed blood can reset and clear our conscience, really clear it, truly cleanse it because the objective problem has been addressed. 
There's a button on our backup system I can press to clear the alarm to make it stop ringing, and I've pressed it a number of times in this last week. But trying to quieten the alarm without fixing the problem, it is actually no help at all. The root cause, the fundamental issue, that needs to be dealt with. That needs to be addressed. And that's what the blood of Jesus does for us. I wonder if the alarm of your conscience has been ringing of late. I wonder if it's troubling you. I wonder if it's keeping you up at night. It's ringing so loudly. Perhaps you've tried to silence it through distraction or busyness or indulgence just through more sin. But maybe you are finding that the noise of it just will not die down. If you haven't come to Jesus Christ for cleansing, may I say to you very simply this morning, you need to come to him for cleansing. You need to come to him in a spirit of repentance, turning away from the wrong that you've done, abandoning your rebellion against God, and you need to come to him in faith, believing that he will do what he says he will do, believing that he has paid the price of your sin. And if you will but come to him in repentance and in faith, he will clear your record of wrong before God. He will give you that gift above every other gift, the gift of a clean conscience. I wonder if you'll come to him. If you've come to Jesus, but your conscience is troubling you afresh, well, maybe that's a sign that you're not living as you should and you need to make things right with the Lord. But it is possible as well for the believer to fail to fully grasp and fully experience the joy of sin's forgiven. It is possible for the believer to wallow in the guilt of sins long forgiven, long dealt with by the blood of Jesus. That does happen. And if that's you, let me just encourage you today. If you belong to Jesus Christ, your sin has been dealt with, your record of guilt has been wiped clean, and you can live today in the joy of a clean conscience because the problem is dealt with and the guilt is gone. It's interesting how verse 14 ends. Jesus shed his blood to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The language of service here in the verse recalls the work of the priests at the temple. It's temple language. The priests had this unique privilege of coming into God's holy presence to worship him, to serve him. But now today, as a cleansed people, you and I are actually welcomed into the presence of the living God, and we are free to worship him, to serve him, because the work of our great high priest has made us welcome, has brought us into his presence. That's our new reality, and it's a glorious reality in Christ. But it is possible even for cleansed believers to feel unfit and to feel unworthy to serve the Lord among his people. And again, maybe you're feeling something of that today. You look around and you see all kinds of respectable-looking people, but you know your own history, you know your own struggles, you know your own failures, and you just feel unworthy to take part. Ever felt like that? Maybe you've been living on the sidelines of church life, slipping in quietly and slipping out quickly on Sundays, keeping a low profile, not getting involved in ministry, and you've been doing that because of this sense of unworthiness. Well, friend, if that is you, 
Notice why it is that Jesus paid such a high price for your cleansing. It is so that you could participate. It is so that you could join in with the people of God in worship and in service. That was his purpose. That was his aim. And perhaps this week, your challenge and your encouragement is to leave the sidelines and enter into the fullness of what Jesus has saved you for, worshiping and serving the living God among his people. Jesus gives us a clean conscience. Next, he gives us an eternal inheritance, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I read this week that we are on the verge of the biggest wealth transfer in human history as large numbers of very wealthy, high net worth or whatever they call them, baby boomers, plan to hand on their fortunes to the next generation. We're going to see trillions of dollars pass into the hands of new millionaires and billionaires over the coming years. Now, many would wish that they could claim or find a family link to a particularly wealthy individual and stand in line to receive their riches. But the hard fact is that you either belong to a family or you don't belong to a family. And if you don't belong, the inheritance, I'm afraid to say, will never be yours. Hebrews reminds us in verse 15 that God has promised a great eternal inheritance to his children. He made the foundational promise of that back in the days of Abraham and to Abraham. And Hebrews is going to go on to tell us that there is a heavenly city and a great eternal future awaiting all those who belong to Jesus. But the hard reality is that each one of us is naturally outside the family. Each one of us is naturally excluded from the will. Excluded not because of a hard-hearted father, but excluded because of our wrongdoing, excluded because of our sin, our transgression. That was true of ancient Israel, and it's true of each one of us here today. But the writer wants to show us how Jesus makes available to us the promised eternal inheritance of the people of God. He wants to show us how Jesus invites us to join the most privileged family in all the world. You'll notice that throughout this paragraph here, verses 15 to 23, there is some legal-sounding vocabulary, the language of covenant and, and the language of will. It's maybe worth knowing that in the original, this is one and the same word. It can be translated will or covenant or sometimes testament, and it can have this dual meaning of a, a binding agreement between two parties, a covenant, or it can mean a last will and testament. And I think the writer's kind of playing on these two meanings here, and he's sliding between the two of them, covenant and will, just a little bit. I, I mention that because the interplay, this back and forth between the two meanings, I think is pretty important here. Just follow it through with me to see what the writer's up to. Verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenants. Under the covenant promises of God to Israel, there's a great inheritance laid up for the children. But the Old Testament people of God violated the terms of the agreement. They jeopardized their inheritance. Wonderfully, the gospel teaches us that Jesus has died to pay the price of sin, to offer a way back in. But here's an important question. How will death make a way for this inheritance? 
Well, think now about that other meaning of the word covenant. Think of that other type of binding pledge. Think of the idea of a last will and testament. Verse 16. For where a will, same word as covenant in verse 15, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Of course, verse 16 there makes basic sense to each one of us. We get the idea that death makes way for an inheritance. That's a normal thing in our world. And so the writer takes that idea and applies the principle here. How would the Lord give to his sinful covenant people, his sinful children, his undeserving children, an inheritance that they clearly do not deserve? Well, children get to inherit when a death occurs. That's what happens. And so Jesus died. Jesus died for us. Jesus died in our place that we might become inheritors of a will that we do not deserve. And having introduced this idea that the Son of God himself would die to allow us to inherit, having moved into the territory of a will, the writer now takes us back to the world of the covenant. And he reminds us of a key principle. Covenants are sealed in blood. And that was the way in the Old Testament, verse 18 Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. This is how it was under the old covenant and how it must be under the new. And the simple reason is this, end of verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The argument here can sound a little complex, I know, and it takes us into a symbolic world that's not familiar to us, but the point is actually pretty simple. In God's economy, in his divine system of justice, sin is always a capital offense, and death has got to occur if sin is going to be paid for. You and I, friends, we've got a sin problem. We've got a guilt problem. And our guilt naturally excludes us from the heavenly inheritance of the children of God. But the gospel teaches us that Jesus died in our place. He shed his blood for us. And his death opens the way for us to inherit what we could never deserve. I don't know whether by birth you come from wealth or poverty or something in between, but it's my joy to tell you today that you have an opportunity to inherit a fortune that would be the envy of the world's richest families. Isn't that good news to be able to share? A glorious city, an eternal home, a future of joy unmixed with sadness and bliss unmarred by pain. And it's yours. It's yours if you will but receive it by faith. Friends, if you belong to Jesus today, as I know most here do, let me just remind you of this inheritance. Let me just remind you of this future that is ours. It may be that actually today you're going through a challenging time in this world. Maybe things are materially hard for you, financially tough for you. The near term may not actually look all that great for you, but let me tell you, the long term looks fantastic. Maybe you're actually doing quite well in this world. You're enjoying the world's wealth, 
And maybe actually the abundance of wealth is causing you to take your eyes off that eternal inheritance. Let me urge you to see again, to delight again in all that God has given you in Christ and not allow yourself to find your joy and to fix your ambition on the fleeting things of this world which are here today and will be gone tomorrow. And if you're not part of the family of God, won't you come? Won't you join? Won't you line yourself up for this glorious inheritance, an inheritance won for you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ? You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called The Sacrifice That Purifies. Taking a look today at Hebrews 9. Our series is called So Great a Salvation, taking a look at the entire book of Hebrews. And if you've missed any of the broadcasts in our series, come and listen online. Our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. When you're at the website, I hope you'll also connect with our weekly devotional. It's called Moment of Truth, and you can subscribe to our newsletter. Speaking of subscribing, have you checked out our YouTube channel yet? If you're on YouTube, simply look for Encounter the Truth, or you'll find a link at our website. And when you're there at the YouTube channel, go ahead and like and subscribe. And that's a great way to stay connected with more of Jonathan's teaching each day. But this ministry and all the different ways that we want to connect with you is made possible through your prayers and your financial generosity. So thank you for giving to and supporting this ministry. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book Jonathan has picked out called Faithful God, an Exposition of the Book of Ruth. It's written by Sinclair Ferguson. Again, our thank you gift to you for your support this month. Find out more, give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Again, here is Jonathan. Jesus offers us a clean conscience, an eternal inheritance, and finally and briefly, a complete salvation. There are some jobs that never appear to be finished. They're always ongoing, always in process. I recently visited Montreal and noticed just how much road work was going on there in Montreal, how much bridge repair and tunnel restoration and road resurfacing was happening. I was initially very impressed by the ambition of city officials to tackle so many projects all at once. I, I commented to friends who live there just on, on how much work was going on, and they responded by saying that road work in Montreal is always ongoing and never ever finished. <laughs> Their take on it is that the jobs never actually get completed at all, and that's why there are so many jobs always in process, a slightly different perspective on the situation. Perhaps the most famous example of the never-ending job is the work of painting the fourth bridge in Scotland, a massive 19th century steel railway bridge that for many years was in a constant state of being repainted. Under the old covenant, the work of making sacrifices for sin, it was never finished. It was perpetually ongoing. And so there was a real sense in which salvation was never secured, never finalized. But when Jesus came as high priest to offer himself and to serve in the heavenly sanctuary, the decisive work was then completed. The job was finished, middle of verse 26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Unlike the work of the priests at the temple in Jerusalem, the work of Jesus at the cross was a once-for-all work, a once-for-all sacrifice. And that's great news for us because we have a once-for-all 
kind of a problem. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you've got a serious problem with your car and you take it into the mechanic, you don't want half measures and partial solutions that might leave you stranded on the shoulder of the 417 at rush hour. You need a complete fix, don't you? You need a real repair. If you've got a serious heart problem and you need a quadruple bypass, you don't want the surgeon to go in and do a quick double bypass in his spare time this afternoon and hope that the other blockages won't kill you before he gets back in to do the other two when time allows. You want the job done all at once. You need it done all at once. If you've got one life to live, one death to endure, one judgment to face. You want a one-stop, complete, and reliable salvation. And that's just what Jesus gave us at the cross. He gave us his very self. He gave the sacrifice of infinite worth to pay the worst of debts and to save the worst of sinners. And he's coming back again. But don't be confused. He's not coming back to finish the work of redemption to pay what's left of the debt of sin. No, he's coming to gather his people to himself. He's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I wonder if you've taken seriously the promise of judgment. Hebrews warns us very clearly here, verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. Once death has occurred, our opportunity to prepare for judgment is gone. It is finished. It is over. I think it's easy for us to hope and imagine that we'll have a second opportunity to make things right with God beyond the grave. It's tempting to hope that we're going to have a second chance. But no, says Hebrews, oh no. After death comes the judgment. That is our divine appointment, and we must keep it. Christ shed his blood at the cross that we could be forgiven that we could be prepared for this coming judgment, that we could be spared the punishment we deserve. His salvation is perfect. It is complete. It is whole. But in, this is crucial. We've got to respond to him. We've got to respond personally, each one of us. We must be those, verse 28, who are eagerly waiting for him, waiting for him in faith and in hope. Those who believe his promises those who have accepted his invitation. So let me ask you, are you one of those people? Have you made the response, or do you have yet to do it? You can do it. You can do it even today. It's not complicated. Who knows when death may come, but now in this moment, you have the opportunity to respond, to say in the quietness of your own heart, Lord Jesus Christ, I am sorry for the wrong I've done. I turn from that. I believe your promises and I accept your salvation. Will you do that? Will you make that response to Jesus Christ even today? And for those of us who have responded a simple question as we close. Are you eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ? Are your eyes fixed on that horizon, on that day when faith will become sight? 
on the day when he will save us from this world of sin and gather us to himself, does that prospect shape your hopes and your dreams and your priorities even for today? Does it comfort you in affliction? And does it steady you in times of earthly joy? Our salvation is complete. And now we await our Savior from heaven. And so we say with John the Apostle, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth in a message called The Sacrifice That Purifies, part of our series, So Great a Salvation. And if you've ever missed a broadcast in the series, come and listen online. Our website is EncounterTheTruth.org, and there you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You can also listen if you have the Encounter the Truth app. That's free at your app store. So I hope you'll get that and listen to Jonathan's teaching whenever it fits your schedule. Well, for our producer, Mark Bretta, as well as our Bible teacher, Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.